We're going to start today with a quiz. We good? We are. Um, I'm going to show on the screen either the nickname, and you tell me what or who it is, or I'll tell you the who, and you give me the nickname, all right? So the Big Apple is New York. What is the eternal city? Rome. What's Tinseltown? Hollywood. Let's go to sports. The great one is Wayne Gretzky. We may or may not all agree on that. Uh, who is Mr. October? Reggie Jackson. That's right. <laughs> who is the Golden Bear? Jack Nicholas. Who was? Uh, what was Irvin Johnson's nickname? Magic. No more than two answers per person, Chris. So you're done. Uh, history. We know of Alexander the Great, um, Catherine the Great, Peter the Great, Alfred the Great, Gregory the Great, lots of greats. Ivan the... Ter doesn't he look terrible? Aren't you glad he's not one of your teachers going to Cameroon? William the Conqueror, Richard the Lionheart. All right. You know your nickname's pretty good. I've had nicknames. Uh, terms of endearment from my mom when I was a kid. I'm not going to tell you what they were because, you know, <laughs> I'm a guy and have some pride. Uh, when I was working for a moving company, I was 20 years old. They called me the preacher and the rev, and I didn't even know then that I'd be doing this someday. We use nicknames all the time, and nicknames reveal what we think defines a person or something. So I want to ask us this morning, what kind of nickname would you like to have? What do you want other people to think defines you? And I could ask that of us as a church, too, because nicknames can be corporate, right? The crazy Canucks, dream team. What kind of nickname might we want as a church? So today we're going, uh, looking at part of Acts chapter 11, and... Here, in this passage, we see two nicknames, one for a person, one for the church. So we're coming back today to the book of Acts after some time away, after preaching about eldership and then preaching about the cross through the Lenten and Good Friday season. So just to remind us where we've been, Acts is written by Luke. And it's essentially volume two of Luke's gospel. Both Luke and Acts are addressed to a man named Theophilus. And Luke, in his gospel, is recording the life of Jesus from his birth through his ministry to his death and his resurrection and ascension. And Luke makes reference to this in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. He says that he's already written about what Jesus began to do and to teach until his ascension. And the implication is that now in Acts, Luke is going to write what Jesus is continuing to do through his followers and by the agency of or through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Acts reads like a history of the early church and the Holy Spirit shows up continually, but it is Christ at work building his church. So the book of Acts is about what Jesus is doing. And in Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus tells his followers that they will be his witnesses in three expanding circles. First in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria, the provinces around Jerusalem, and then finally to the ends of the earth. And that's how it was. Acts 1 through 7 describes the witness in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12, essentially, in Judea and Samaria. 
And then chapter 13 and onward to the end of the book, the message of Jesus is proclaimed and bears fruit throughout the Mediterranean world and ending up in Rome, the heart of the Roman Empire, the eternal city. And the shift in Acts from the ministry in Jerusalem to the ministry throughout Judea and Samaria happens in, at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. And there, after the martyrdom of Stephen, a great persecution against the church breaks out, led by Saul of Tarsus. Acts 8 verse 1, this is what we read. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then in verse 4, we read, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So there it is, followers of Jesus being his witness. And the witness, by the way, in Acts is always described as the preaching of the word. That's, that's how they bore witness to Jesus. So they are witnessing for Jesus now in Judea and Samaria. And from that scattering of Christians from Jerusalem in Acts 8 verse 1, Luke traces several threads of the story. First, he follows Philip and his effective ministry in Samaria and then to the Ethiopian official. That's chapter 8. Then Luke goes back to chapter 8, verse 1, and from there traces the story of the conversion of Saul himself, who was leading the persecution, ends up getting converted, becomes a great missionary. That's most of chapter 9. Then Luke, from chapter 8, verse 1, picks up the story of Peter and how the gospel of Jesus was accepted by the Gentiles for the first time. That's part of chapter 9, all of chapter 10, and the first 18 verses of chapter 11. Now in our text this morning, Luke is again picking up a thread from chapter 8, verse 1, in the scattering of the Christians at the time of the persecution. So again, Acts eleven nineteen. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word, being witnesses, to no one except Jews. Now this would be expected because... I think most of the Christians would still have considered the gospel of Jesus a Jewish gospel about the God of the Jews and about a Jewish Messiah and the fulfillment of the Jewish prophecies as recorded in the Jewish scriptures. But there were some others who took it further. The next verse. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists or the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was on them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So Antioch was in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea, about 500 kilometers north of Jerusalem. And so the gospel now is beginning to explode geographically. Antioch was a beautiful, renowned city. Josephus, writing in the first century, called it, one of the, uh, called it the third greatest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria and Egypt. Its population, Antioch, numbered in the hundreds of thousands. It included Greeks and Jews and Persians from the east and Latins from the west, very cosmopolitan. So it's very natural that Christians fleeing Jerusalem for their lives would, would migrate to this major urban center of Antioch. And, and they did. And as they did, they brought their faith with them. And spoke the word to the Jews there. 
And among these missionaries to Antioch, some mavericks on the cultural cutting edge, Jewish Christians, but whose countries of origin uh, included Cyrene and the African coast and the island of Cyprus, they were also speaking the word to the Greeks. Now, this, was, this is more than just innovative. This is revolutionary for them. And notice, too, these are not the apostles, but these, while, Pete, while God was taking Peter through this major paradigm shift concerning the Gentiles in chapters 10 and 11, these rank-and-file followers of Jesus in Antioch, whose names we don't even know, had embraced God's mission for the world and were living it. And because they were doing precisely what God had called them to do anyway, the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great many who believed turned to the Lord. And that is what it is all about. It is not about joining the church. The mission of the church is to see people turn to the Lord. And that only happens when the hand of the Lord is with us. And the hand of the Lord is only with us when our great desire is to see people turn to the Lord. So the church in Antioch just exploded, not just in a matter of days or weeks, but a few years are summarized here. But there is a great work of God going on in this great city. And 500 kilometers to the south, word of this great awakening in Antioch comes to Jerusalem, which was still, in a sense, the church's global headquarters. So the apostles in Jerusalem felt the need to send somebody to Antioch, not because they were control freaks, but the early church was still under apostolic authority. So whom should they send? Well, they send Barnabas, maybe because he was himself from Cyprus, where some of those preaching in Antioch had come from. So Barnabas makes his 500-kilometer journey, and when he comes to Antioch, he sees what is clearly the activity of God, the grace of God, the Bible calls it. And when he sees it, he was glad. And we read, he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Barnabas, though, is not his name. It's his nickname. His name was Joe. But he was no ordinary Joe. Gregory of Nyssa, one of the patriarchs of the church in the 300s, wrote this in a letter to a friend. At horse races, the spectators intent on victory shout to their favorites in the contest, even though the horses are, already, eager to run. From the stands, they participate in the race with their eye, thinking to incite the charioteer to keener effort, at the same time urging the horses on while leaning forward and flailing the air with their outstretched hands instead of with a whip. They do this not because their actions themselves contribute anything to the victory, But in this way, by their goodwill, they eagerly show in voice and deed their concern for the contestants. I seem to be doing the same thing myself, most valued friend and brother. While you are competing admirably in the divine race along the course of virtue, leaping and straining constantly for the prize of the heavenly calling, I exhort, urge, and encourage you vigorously. That's the kind of person that Barnabas was. 
We first met Barnabas, if you were here and remember, in Acts chapter 4 with these words. So Joe, Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And those words come at the end of a description of the first generation of the followers of Jesus Christ. That they were one in heart and soul. That they refused to consider any of their possessions as rightfully belonging to them, but they shared. Sometimes they would sell land or houses and just give the proceeds to the apostles. And it would be used to provide for the needs of anyone in their fellowship who needed it. An incredibly generous, united community of faith. And then as kind of a a poster boy for this community, Luke introduces Barnabas. And Barnabas had noticed apparently that there was some significant need among the believers and he said, I can do something about that. So he sold a piece of property, gave the proceeds toward the need. What a generous spirit Joseph Barnabas had. And not only had Barnabas done this one act, But his his character and the spirit in which he consistently did this kind of thing attracted the attention of the apostles to such a a degree that they gave him a nickname, Son of Encouragement. Now, how would you like to be known by that nickname? Oh, good, the encouragers here. Encouragement defined what Barnabas was like. It defined how he treated people. It defined how he went about leadership and service. Son of encouragement. What a great nickname. And that's how we meet him in Acts 4. The next time we see Barnabas is a few chapters later in Acts 9. Saul of Tarsus, you remember, has been breathing threats and murder against the followers of Jesus, dragging off men and women to prison. He had participated in and gave his official approval to the mob martyrdom of Stephen. But then as he's trying to expand his anti-Christian murderous campaign as far as uh, Damascus in Syria, Saul has an encounter with Jesus and he is changed and he becomes a follower of Jesus. But then later he comes back to Jerusalem and wants to meet with the disciples, but then he discovers he is a problem. They were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he really was a disciple. Maybe they thought, you know, he's just pulling a stunt. He's just trying to infiltrate our ranks in order to put himself in a position to do more damage than he did before. I mean, this guy had been responsible for imprisonment, death, Of some of their number. And many more, likely several thousand, had been forced to flee their homes in their city because of this guy. No way were the disciples going to trust him. They were afraid of him. But not all of them were afraid. I don't know how Barnabas and Saul connected or how Barnabas came to know Saul's story. But Barnabas not only believed Saul, he went to bat for him. Barnabas brought Saul to the apostles. And I would imagine that Saul would have felt the the hostile looks of the apostles. He would have felt the, the weight of their suspicion, knowing what he had done to deserve it. 
Imagine how he felt then hearing Barnabas advocate for him and telling, him, telling the apostles that, no, Saul really has actually seen the Lord. He's heard his voice. Saul has been boldly and effectively preaching Christ in Damascus. And surely Barnabas would have told them that Saul had experienced persecution in Damascus as well because he had had to flee Damascus for his own life. So Barnabas shows his colors as a son of encouragement. As a result, Saul, who will soon become the church's greatest missionary, Saul and the apostles are brought together. See, Barnabas refused to believe that Saul's past defined his present. And that's what a son or daughter of encouragement can be for someone. Have you ever felt like people judged you or put you in a box because they knew your past? Or a flip side, have you ever had someone who saw and celebrated and maybe even participated in the work of God in your life? And what a person of grace and encouragement that would have been. That is something, by the way, that you can be for someone else. Where other people say, useless deadbeat kid, no hope for him. A person of encouragement says, God can make that person great and mighty in his kingdom. and I want to be a part of that. Where some might say, they're doing it the wrong way. A person of encouragement says, bless them for doing something. Let's help them. That was Barnabas. Someone in the room said, Saul, our enemy, I hate him. Barnabas says, oh, but he has been changed by Jesus. He's one of us. And you know what? When he talks about Jesus, other people get changed by Jesus too. And so it's Barnabas that carries the day. And no one in Christian history has had a greater impact on Christ's church than Paul. And Barnabas brought him to the apostles. Son of encouragement. The next time we see Barnabas in Acts is in the passage that we read today. Gospel, like I said, is exploding all over Antioch. Gentiles are coming to faith in droves. Who should the apostles send? Who's got a proven track record of discernment and character? Ah! We'll send Barnabas. And so Barnabas goes and not only affirms that this movement in Antioch is the work of God, he was glad. So much in character for him. And he encourages them. Of course he does. That's what Barnabas does. And so he's described in our text as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now, doesn't that make sense? Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, all the things that would turn somebody into a son of encouragement, into a person of grace. And who wouldn't delight to be around such a person? You know what? Those are your favorite people. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but those kinds of people are your favorite people. The church in Antioch grows so much. The work of spiritual formation is so great in the lives of so many new Christians that Barnabas needs help. I can't lead this thing on my own. So he thinks of Saul. 
This convert for whom he'd gone to bat probably seven or so years ago since the events of chapter 9. And so he goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. Maybe no easy task. It was a large city. But he finds him, brings him back to Antioch. And there for a year together, Saul and Barnabas teach and disciple the church. Now, it's interesting that Saul, you may remember this about him, you might not, but he had been a Pharisee. He had been Jewish to the core, zealous for the Jewish law. But he would go on to become the greatest missionary to the Gentiles, would found churches in the major cities of the Mediterranean world, east of Rome. His letters to those churches, which were largely Gentile, made up a good portion of what has become God's word to us. He quite literally changed the world. And it was possible because Barnabas saw God's work in Saul, saw his potential, advocated for him, and drew him into leadership of the church. And there's no question that Saul's work among the Gentiles in Ephesus and Corinth and Philippi, that that Antioch was a training ground for his work with the Gentiles. And where would Saul have been without Barnabas? Because people of grace have that kind of impact. And nor was Saul the only person impacted by Barnabas. One more. In Acts 13, the Holy Spirit commissions Barnabas and Saul as missionaries. And so the church in Antioch prays for them and sends them out. And they do a circuit of some of the cities north of the Mediterranean. And they're accompanied by a man named Mark, or John Mark, who is Barnabas' cousin. And for some reason, we don't know why, Mark leaves them early in the trip and returns home. And Saul, now called Paul, and Barnabas just continue on their journey. They make a circuit of several cities, probably took them a year or two, and then return home to Antioch. Then at the end of chapter 15 of Acts, Paul says to Barnabas, hey, Let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. And Barnabas says, great idea. Next verse. Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them and had not gone with them in the work. The Bible goes on to say, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Don't know the specifics around it, but Paul apparently thought he couldn't rely on Mark to see this next endeavor through. And he felt strongly enough about it that it was enough to separate him from Barnabas. So Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. Now, the Bible doesn't say who is right, who is wrong. Just, they disagree, but it was a sharp disagreement. And it was enough to end this beautiful partnership that Paul and Barnabas had had. But Barnabas sticks to his guns. He's the kind of guy who's willing to give somebody another shot. And he proved that with Paul already. And now he gives to Mark the chance that Paul was not willing to give him. And at the end of the last letter that we have from Paul... As he senses his death approaching, a couple of decades have passed. Paul writes a letter to Timothy. 
and includes in his letter these words. Do your best, Timothy, to come to me soon. For Demas has deserted me, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. In the years intervening, Mark had apparently developed as a Christian and as a leader to the point that Paul now recognized his value and wanted Mark with him as his death approached. Mark wrote one of the Gospels. It's generally agreed to be the first one written. And maybe Mark's growth and maturity could happen because the Apostle Barnabas didn't give up on him, but instead took him along and mentored him. A person of grace does that for people. And Barnabas Barnabas was evidence that a gospel of grace creates people of grace. He showed grace to Paul, showed grace to Mark, showed grace to the Gentiles out of Israel. This is how John Ortberg envisions Barnabas' funeral. This is what John Ortberg says. Barnabas' funeral. A man stands up. It's Paul. And everyone nudges each other because, you know, this is Paul. He's famous. And Paul says, you know, I, am, I persecuted the church. I imprisoned the Christians. And after I met Jesus, nobody would touch me with a 10-foot pole. No one trusted me. They didn't want anything to do with me. But Barnabas came and put his arm around me and said, I'll vouch for him. And I stand here today because of this man, Barnabas. Then John Mark gets up, and everyone notices him. This is Mark. He wrote one of the Gospels. And Mark says, truth is, I was a quitter. I ran away from ministry. But Barnabas wouldn't give up on me. He saw something in me and took me under his wings and said, I'll vouch for him. And I stand here today before you because of this man, Barnabas. Then another man stands up, a Greek man from Antioch, and he says, I was a pagan I was far from God. I was so lost. Then one day I heard about Jesus and I wanted to follow him, but I didn't know Jewish law. I couldn't be Jewish. I didn't fit. And then Barnabas came along and said, Jesus came for a guy like me. And he put his arm around me. And I'm here today because of this man, Barnabas. And an old widow stands up. Nobody nudges anybody. She's not famous. But she says, you know, many years ago, My husband died and left me alone with the children. We didn't have anything, no income. I didn't know if I'd make it. Then this man Barnabas came along. He quietly sold some of his property so that I could have something to live on and to feed my children. And I'm here today because of this man Barnabas. That's the funeral of a person of grace. Have you ever thought about what your funeral would be like, what you want it to be like? As Jesus defined greatness, humility and service and love, Barnabas is one of Christianity's great figures. The gospel grew out of its limited ethnic core to become a movement that spans two millennia and includes you and me, thousands of miles from Israel. A good portion of our sacred scripture comes to us from the pens of Paul and Mark. And the impact of Barnabas, the son of encouragement, on this movement of which we are a part is enormous. 
He was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And because he was an encourager. He was a man who had been touched by God's grace and showed grace to others. And I think that I can safely say, at least to a degree, that I am here today because of this man, Barnabas. Who has been Barnabas for you? Who has been that person that's come alongside and helped to bring you to the place where you are now? Who is it of whom you can say, I'm here today because of that person? Who was or is now on the balcony cheering you on? Inciting you to keener effort by their goodwill showing their concern for you. Now put yourself in the balcony. Not literally, though some of you have. Hi. Who is it that needs you to cheer them on? Who is the one who needs your arm around their shoulder and needs to hear a word of grace from you? Maybe when a new ministry gets launched, you're the one who says, good for you for taking the initiative. How can I help? Maybe somebody comes to church trying to get their life back together and you put your arm around them and say, you know what, let me spend some time with you. God wants your best too. Let me just walk with you for a little while as you do this. Maybe a youth or a young adult at that time in their life when they need to figure out whether this faith that they grew up in is real or not, whether they're ready to give their lives to it, maybe you can be the one who says, you know, why don't we meet every month for the next year? We can talk about God and life and you can ask questions. And how many people in our culture would still be in churches, even in our church, knowing Jesus, if they'd had someone like that, a Barnabas. Barnabas was a son of encouragement, a good man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. When he saw God at work in Antioch, he was glad. He exhorted them to remain faithful, and he and Saul spent a year teaching the followers of Christ who were in Antioch. And then... We get this other sentence in in our text, and it almost reads like a throwaway line. It's the end of verse 26. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. There's the other nickname. Christians. It's a word that means little Christs. In verses 27 to 30, the Antioch believers hear that the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem are going to be in need. And so we read, they determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Now, does that sound familiar? Have we heard something like that before? Doesn't that take us right back to Acts chapter 4? The description of the Christian community in Jerusalem, where we first met Barnabas. There is a DNA in the followers of Jesus. Wherever they go, they preach the word. In other words, they can't help talking about Jesus. They're they're sons and daughters of encouragement who cheer one another on. They're glad when they recognize God's work and his grace in action. They are generous in meeting each other's needs. Barnabas was such a one. The believers in Antioch taught and led and inspired by Barnabas. They were like that. They talked about Christ. They acted like Christ. In their character, they looked like Christ. They loved like Christ. 
And so they were nicknamed Little Christs. And it's a nickname that has stuck to this day. And we have that nickname. It's not the name of the religion to which we belong. It is a nickname for the followers of Jesus. And I pray that you, each one of you, and me too, will be a son and a daughter of encouragement, a person of grace. And that we, together as a church, will wear the nickname Christian and wear it well and do honor to that name. Let's pray. Just the thought very quickly, Lord, of your word in Revelation that says that you have a name to give to us, and we don't know it yet. I suspect it'll be our real name, in a sense, the name that you, that you are giving, the name that will define us. And I'm curious about what that will be, and I look forward to hearing it, receiving it. But in these days, on this side of glory, there are some nicknames that we would choose for ourselves. We would love to be people of grace and encouragement. And we would love to be little Christs, the presence of Jesus in our broken world. And I pray for your continued work of grace in our lives that our character would be so formed that the actions that flow from that character will be like Jesus and will get the attention of the world, not attention for us, but attention focused on Jesus. And that they'll, they'll think of us not as a good church, but as people who are like Christ. Lord, this word encouragement, this nickname Christian, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you make them fit? And we will seek you and we will listen to you as Ray and Christine have done. We will seek to be obedient, not to earn the name, but to live up to it. It's not about earning that we'll live out of who you have made us to be, this we pray, needing your help on one hand, but committing to it ourselves on the other. And we pray it in the great name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.